Welcome everyone, I'm Jeffrey Goodman, Director of Marketing and Development for the YMCA of Northwest Louisiana, and we're here today for Shreveport Bossier, my city, my community, my home. And our guest is Kelly Rouse, who actually I know decently well. Uh, most of my guests I'm meeting for the first time, so it's nice to have someone who I have a relationship with. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Jeffrey. Of course. Well, I'm looking forward to getting into Kelly's world, uh, which is uh, unique, and uh, we need to talk about it. So let's let's jump in. Um, this past August, you launched Community School in partnership with Holy Angels. Yeah. Tell me about Community School. I know it provides individuals with disabilities with therapeutic and educational offerings what age individuals are eligible to participate, what are some of the areas of development targeted by the school, and what makes community school a unique offering for our special needs population? Loaded question, Jeffrey. So, yeah, I mean, I think community school is so unique in that it's the culmination of like 20 years of experience. Um, 20 years of your experience. Of my experience. Right. Um, the obstacles I encountered in the educational system, the obstacles I encountered in the therapeutic system. Um, and then also, I think it's important to know, not only am I professional, um, I was an educator first, a school psychologist, and now a behavior analyst, but also as a mother of a child with special needs. I have a seven-year-old who has uh, muscular dystrophy. so that's really been just a whole nother level of understanding what parents go through and um, really being able to meet the needs in our community. Each community is so incredibly different. Um, and Shreveport's very, Shreveport Bossier area is very, very unique. So what we did is we looked at creating a model that really didn't exist, not only in this community, but in this state where we take the best of all disciplines and worlds and we really put the um, great creative minds together to create something that's really tailored for each individual. Um, predominantly, people associate applied behavior analysis with autism, but our field really never... And they call it ABA, ABA right? ABA, right. yeah, ABA therapy. Um, so a lot of people have heard that, that acronym, that term, but they associate it with people on the spectrum which it's very applicable to solving some um, problems commonly encountered for families with children with autism. But truly our field um, was never developed for that. Um, back in Psych 101, all of our EZA classes that a lot of us didn't pay close attention to, you learn about B.F. Skinner and Pavlov and all of it sounds fun and interesting and it's fun to listen to, but then you go back and realize the utility of solving societal problems with um, the science of human behavior. So really, it's a field of science. We fall in the medical field in the state of Louisiana, so we're under the Department of Health. Um, so it's, it's very medical in nature, requires a prescription from doctors and such. And um, so it's really important that our school um, really partnered closely with people in the medical community um, in developing this model. And then on the flip side, you have the educational components, which are crucial because our educators are the experts on scope and sequence and development and what really creates an enriched learning environment. And when you bring the two worlds together, it's pretty magical, you know? Um, so that's what we've done with community school. Um, 
everything I've ever set out to do, I think the number one most important thing is sustainability. Um, everything we do is evidence-based. We're heavy in the research, which by the way, is always changing. So just when we think we have something figured out, there's a new better way that comes along. Um, it's important to have a transparent model that we're always evolving, we're always moving forward. Um, parents help collaborate with us to create this model. And um, every child's experience is a little bit different. It's very, very individualized and tailored to them, which by the way, is costly. Um, so fundraising is a huge part of that. Um, but yeah, so partnering and merging with the vision of Holy Angels brought that component of sustainability, a really strong business model. Um, we wanted something very affordable for families. Um, so many of our families who have loved ones with special needs have exponential cost. Um, the financial burdens on families are unbelievable. And so we really sought to create a model that would um, meet the demographics of our community. So um, parents do pay a small uh, private school tuition to be under the educational side and to receive the specialized educational services, but um, we work with insurance companies to pay for the therapeutic components and keep the costs really low for families. So, And ages, tell me oh, ages served. Ages, age, we start at two, okay. um, early intervention's key. So um, two-year-olds all the way through 21 um, can receive services within the school. And I read something where I guess commonly parents often parents have to go one place for education another place for therapy so this concept of having everything in one location is critical to community school yeah it's very critical um really early in my career you know i was actually at a school previously and parents would come through carlin at three you can tell they're in a rush they've just picked up their siblings at other schools and other car lines and they're battling traffic and they're trying to get to this therapy center or that therapy center and it really did all of those things piled on the stress for parents and our job as behavior analysts are really to alleviate stress and to me this is one thing that's a no-brainer partnering with ot speech therapists physical therapist um, our goal is to really have everything under one roof right now we have a full-time ot on staff which is really a dream that children um, can get their therapy and education in one setting but also um, more importantly, you have all of these people from different disciplines collaborating in real time with the child right in front of them in their natural setting. So we're able to adopt strategies that are effective from one another as practitioners, which in turn just benefits the child. Um, I think partnership would be a key, a key ingredient in the community school, partnership with other practitioners in our community partnership with um, people from different disciplines under our roof. Um, that's really a rare experience, so. Awesome. Yeah. All right, so now I wanna, um, I, I stole a quote from you that I wanna talk about for a second. Okay. So, uh, and this was a while back, but you once said the following in speaking about autism. Inside each kid is a typical boy or girl. As problems are chipped away and more are chipped away, we see more of their personality of who they're meant to be. 
talk to me about this quote and is it applicable to all the work you do, whether you're working with someone with autism, Downs, Tourette's, muscular dystrophy, cerebral palsy, intellectual disability, ADHD, anxiety disorders, Angelman's, etc. Um, so I think that was young Kelly <laughs> that said that, and Kelly today would still say that. I think the most important thing um, we can do is see the person right in front of us. In fact, our, at our staff meeting last week, I was talking to a lot of my younger staff who are newer in the field about the importance of not putting too much emphasis on a diagnosis. Um, it can be misleading. It can create this perpetual um, focus on a problem instead of a resolution. One thing that drew me to behavior analysis really early in my career was the fact that it really looked at a set of behavioral characteristics, something I know for sure. I didn't make a lot of inference about what was happening in a person internally, but like what are the excessive behaviors that are interfering with their learning or optimal performance in life or their quality of life. and what are the skill sets that should be there that aren't present? And it gave us something super practical to work with. If I see that a person has trouble communicating and that is leading to a whole lot of problems in their life, that's something I can help them with. There are a lot of evidence-based practices for increasing or teaching communication. And it gives me something to um, teach their family unit or their social unit, their the people that they go to church with, the people that they go to school with, the people, if, if they're older, maybe the people that they work with. Um, so that you have people in all of their community, their small community working together to make that more effective. Um, but if I focus too much on a diagnosis, it doesn't lead to resolution. And so um, I still stand by that quote. I think it's super important that we really stop labeling people and we really just start looking at abilities. Um, looking at a person's abilities opens the door to a whole lot of future opportunities and social opportunities where they access reinforcement and they contribute to our community. Um, where they're happy. Our science is really focused on quality of life. And I actually think that's true for myself, you, like people, people at large. I mean, that's something we can all relate to. Are we satisfied in all areas and domains of our life? And people with diagnoses such as the ones you just listed are no different. But sometimes we get lost in the shuffle feeling like it's so out of the box that maybe they go by a different set of roles, but they don't. We're actually much more alike than we're different. Um, it just presents differently, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. <clears throat> All right, I read, I read back in 2013 that less than one-third of all students with special needs went on to graduate from Louisiana public high schools. Are the statistics today pretty similar, and what tools are Louisiana public high schools most lacking to fully support our students with special needs? So I would actually say post-COVID, the statistics would be gravely different. Um, we saw it just in Cadet Parish over 5,000 kids drop off the charts during COVID that were originally enrolled in special ed. Um, 
which when they drop off the charts, what's that mean? They, that means that maybe their parents um, chose not to send them back to public school. Maybe they're homeschooling. Maybe they put them in private schools, which um, is a difficult and limited opportunity, um, depending on their skill sets. But um, we saw a lot of people that were once enrolled receiving those services no longer receiving those services. And during COVID, I actually worked in New Orleans, Baton Rouge area, and I would say the statistics down there are probably worse. Um, so post-COVID world is very different for all of us anyway. Um, I, I would think in the special needs community, it's, it's been pretty um, detrimental and isolating. And um, another reason that, you know, many of my colleagues and I came together and said, it's time for a school. Like we need something that is the next best thing, like to what we knew before. Um, and I think a lot of, we learned a lot of lessons during that time about how people learn about what really is education and what is it not. Um, that's a very subjective question, right? About what is true education and what, is the role and responsibility of educators in our community versus what is happening today. Um, I believe personally, I always say the three E's of education, exposure, enrichment, and experience. Um, and for people with developmental disabilities or learning difficulties, we may need to expose many more times than the typical learners are exposed to an activity or a lesson or a learning opportunity to familiarize and gain those skills. So exposure becomes really important in how we plan and how we build curricula for people that are out of the box learners. Um, experience is crucial. Um, a lot of people with developmental disabilities don't have access to a lot of social opportunities that our typical learners do because of the presence of problematic behavior or maybe just behaviors that are not pro-social. For instance, um, the YMCA gave us a great context to introduce a lot of adolescents with maybe loud vocal tics um, to social settings where maybe their parents weren't as comfortable taking them into public settings because people would stare or they'd ask questions or maybe parents felt like they were intrusive in those settings and it was bothering other people. Um, having community settings that are more open to and accepting of people that present with some less desirable social behaviors. It gives us great learning opportunities and experience to reduce those problematic behaviors for people with developmental disabilities and teach them what to do instead so that they have a better experience. Um, I definitely think that's a key role of educators. So exposure um, and, then, and then increasing the variety of life I would say so a lot of my friends on the autism spectrum may have more restrictive interest right may have a tendency for more habitual behavior like this is always what I do I only do these two or three things and that's true for other people I'm a little bit a creature of habit also um, so in in the educational experience I think it's super crucial that we're able to really push people outside of their comfort zones and introduce um, really enriched community settings and activities that may lead to uh, a more diverse set of interest, which in turn leads to more social opportunities. 
Um, I think it's really important because relationships are established, friendships or any kind of relationship really, are established on one commonality. So you and I met, we had one thing we had in common and instantly you have a friend, right? So for a lot of my friends on the spectrum that stay restrictive in their interests or isolate, it is very isolating socially. Um, and it prevents those relationships from happening. Um, so as educators, I think that's a huge, a huge um, part of our responsibility and role. And for what a lot of school systems have in their hand to work with, they're limited. We're short on teachers. We're short on funds sometimes. Um, the ratio of instructors to students, and not just any instructor, trained instructors, um, certified in certain specialties, um, we're short on that. So I think our school systems are strained a lot of times and we're doing the best we can with what we have. But I think the, the breakdown is in that we're gonna continue to pay for these people to have a lot of services after 21. And the best thing we can do is invest when we're younger to increase independence and to increase social opportunities so that in the future, it's less of a financial strain on society. Now that's not my personal agenda, but that is, that is an important factor for people to consider. Investing in our educational systems and um, really having high quality programs would actually lead to more um, adults with the developmental disabilities being able to work and being able to go to the workforce and really um, thrive and benefit the community at large. Um, so I don't know if that directly answered your question, but I do think that that is a really important conversation to be ongoing, and I think it requires transparency. I think that um, we constantly need to evolve, and that's been really difficult post-COVID. Um, I think our administrators and our educators are under a lot of restraints and restrictions that don't allow them the creativity to do what many of them would tell you they know needs to be done. Um, and hence why we started a school. <laughs> Let me ask you a question, which wasn't one of my plain questions, but okay. I'm just thinking as you're talking, how do you feel about, how, how do schools or teachers know this student should be mixed in with general population or they should how do you how do you make that determination or distinction that this person this student needs to be separated or this student is benefiting from being included in and in whose job or responsibility is it to 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 make that decision great question million dollar question okay and I'm um, still a tough question after 20 years of being in the field I, I struggle with this daily <clears throat> so First of all, I think it's really important that we use um, assessment to drive a lot of decisions that is very like objective. So a quick answer would be that we have we utilize a lot of assessment tools that will tell us like we need to have 40 of the 50 skill sets acquired to be able to really benefit from general ed um, education. And the reason that's important is I tell my staff all the time, we have a rule called the dead man's rule. If a dead man can do it, it's not a goal. I don't need um, out of the box, my out of the box learners going into a class and behaving themselves and not disrupting everyone else and just sitting there, but not engaged in learning, right? And not engaged socially. Um, that's not a goal. 
right? So I have a lot of kids who could do that, but they're not going to continue to progress. So we really look at the skill sets that children need, and that helps drive our treatment plans also. Our goal is to always have kids with their same age peers engage in as many pro-social activities and educational activities as possible. Um, you always do a, a risk-benefit. You're constantly weighing that. You know, is it better to invest this year in something much more intentional and intensive educationally so that this time next year we're having different conversations with parents about all the opportunities we have for um, placements in general education um, classrooms. So it's each one of them requires a lot of parent participation. Parent dr parents drive and should drive a lot of those um, educational paths, if you will. Another really interesting um, component of community school that's, that's really been a dream is I, I strongly believe in partnership with um, pre-established uh, private schools, public schools, um, therapy centers. No one of us can do it all. And the best thing we can do is partner together to really put a dent in the problem in our community. So off camera, before we started, you were talking about some of the partner, and this wasn't one of my questions, so I'd like you to talk yeah. about it. Talk to me about some of the different organizations with whom you're already partnering and partnered. Yeah, so, um, well, I think the first one that really changed my way of thinking was probably with the YMCA. And that was years ago with the first school I worked at. Um, it was really amazing to have a community of people who were like, not only, sure, we'll let you come, that was never the conversation, it was absolutely, please come, be part of our world, tell us how we can do things differently, how can we open the doors to more people in our community, how can we serve families better? Um, that was really refreshing and actually pretty rare. I think people are, I think the heart of our community is to want to do that, but being willing to change what you're currently doing is a different level of commitment to making those things happen. Um, you never have all the answers to all your questions. You never feel like you have all your ducks in a row. I think 99% of our job is to be willing to be open and try it, right? And um, so we've had a lot of partnerships with places you wouldn't think of as partnerships, salons, because haircuts can be difficult, um, <laughs> restaurants, because mealtime behavior can be difficult to learn and or we don't like to eat at all because maybe we have feeding issues. But um, I can't tell you how many restaurant owners in this community have been like, Kelly, bring your students at lunch. We would love to do that. That's okay, we'll work through it. Let us know how we can serve you better. And they'll have the food prepared and sitting at the table when the child walks in so that waiting isn't an issue, so that they feel success. So those were my early partnerships that continue on. Um, but recently, <clears throat> do you want to do you want to mention specifically any of the salons or any of the restaurants? Just because I think yeah. that's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, Holly Johnson had a salon in Bozier, and now her salon's actually in her house. But she's actually coming to our school to do uh, haircuts for those that have more severe reactions to haircuts. Um, she's one. Um, San Miguel's, Luciano and Cassidy Monzon, who owns San Miguel's, um, they have been incredible. Incredible, and actually, I met um, Luciano when he worked at Superior. So Superior, to think about a place that's that busy and that packed all the time, and really that loud, if you will, for a lot of kids, like those are those are places that early on in my career were like, bring your kids, let you know, come, but 
but all the way down to like IHOP and the waitresses um, learning the kids that would come like monthly or twice a month at IHOP because we would go to restaurants um, for like brunch time where they were less busy there wasn't as much of a crowd and we would learn to engage in some positive mealtime behavior that um, and short waits you know that help kids experience success so we've had really a great response from Don Wines. Don Wines is a favorite of a lot of my kids because obviously it's a quick turnaround. You order, you sit. But what's really cool is to see um, the owners of these restaurants, but also the waiters and waitresses and um, the guys cleaning tables. They've actually not only like met some of the kids, but they've really like engaged them so much that now they have relationships and they look for them to come. And when they finally meet their parents, they're like, "Oh my gosh, you're so and so's mom!" and it's been really amazing because what you find is you thought you were doing a favor for someone else, but what it really did is did a favor for you. And um, as the grown up, right, as the person who like now has a new perspective on people that are different than you, it's not that scary. We're all much more similar than different, right? And so those are some of the. Um, and then talk about some of the, the schools, schools or yeah. So yeah, like um, one of the schools that we've had a lot of success with and um, and having these conversations and growing the programs we're able to to provide in our community would be um, Word of God Shekinah Academy. Um, so we have a great partnership with them and their director Lisa Wallace is um, an incredible person for our community to have. Uh, she's been in this community probably about 20 years or a little longer um, meeting the needs of, of learners with special needs and developmental disabilities. Um, and so being able to go into that community and help kids be successful where they're already established and um, it is really a goal of community school. They don't have to come to us and be under our roof to be part of our family. Right, so we're there to serve them. So if it, what's best is to maintain um, a placement at a school where their siblings also attend, then we need to meet the need of the learner and their family, not what's most convenient for us. Right, so Shekinah Academy would be a great one, um, but we've also started to work with some public schools in Caddo um, who have adolescents with severe challenging behavior. I think this particular slice of the population is probably, to me, one of the largest needs in our community. And there's not a lot of practitioners who um, specialize in the treatment of severe challenging behavior. And what we're talking about typically is property destruction, self-injury, aggression, um, severe cases of elopement. Um, these are all major safety issues for the person experiencing that, but also for their family, their siblings. And, um, you know, I think it's um, pretty incredible that people are now just having really honest and open conversations um, if any of us had all the answers, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in, right? So it really does take transparency and uh, the willingness to be open-minded about what kind of strategies and evidence-based practices we can and can't use in certain settings, what parents are comfortable with. We've got to have consent, right? There's a lot of education that has to happen for those of us making decisions. Um, but those partnerships have been really incredible so far. And um, part of that's a key ingredient in the vision for community schools that we're able to um, experience that outreach um, because our little building can only hold so much, right? So we really want to help others um, become educated 
that they can do these things too. It's not rocket science. It's not easy, but it's not rocket science, and, and we can help educate other practitioners to do what we do. Awesome. All right, Kelly. So you serve on the Rare Disease Advisory Council. If I'm not mistaken, you might be the only representative from the Shreveport-Bossier area. Yes. How is Shreveport-Bossier doing in terms of rising to take care of its special needs population compared to the rest of the state? And how about, from your perspective, compared to the rest of the country? Yeah, great question. So I um, was appointed to the board in August of 2021 and immediately knew I had a lot to learn about how um, everything works and how decisions are made or not made and how funding works and um, really become more educated on the rare disease community in our state but also in our smaller community in shreveport Bossier. Um, and the first thing you find is that rare disease isn't so rare, right? Um, so to if you look at each individual rare disease in isolation, it's very rare. It's very isolating, and the education is very um, sparse. <laughs> and people definitely experience a grief process because they typically feel so alone. But when you look at the number of people diagnosed with rare disease in our state, the numbers are exponential. And so what we found is by coming together and having conversations and creating some movement about ways to um, improve the quality of life for our citizens with rare disease, um, it was a much more powerful approach in creating change. <clears throat> and rare disease is a funny um, term because I think people think disease um, a medically progressive situation, which it can entail that. But a lot of rare disease really are um, rare syndromes or genetic disorders that are diagnosed with kids with special needs. And so many of these people, um, I've been serving for 20 years as my students or my clients in therapy. And um, <clears throat> a lot of times they have comorbid diagnoses. So you may be diagnosed with Phelan McDermott syndrome, but also autism spectrum disorder. So I think that joining that advisory council has taught me so much about what our state has to offer. From um, one of the first things every rare disease council across the country addressed was newborn screenings because we can prevent so much unnecessary um, med medical issues but also problems for families if we're able to catch it at birth, okay? And so when we compared our state to the rest of the country, this is one time that Louisiana was way ahead of the game. We actually really met the national markers and recommendations for all the newborn screenings that should be in place. So that was a great surprise. And I will tell you personally, I've experienced um, many of my clients and, and family friends, their children were diagnosed at birth because of newborn screening. So in that way, Louisiana's ahead of the game. And let me, let me just interrupt yeah. one second. So catching it at birth, that helps you just because everything you're doing is aligned and in, in tune with attuned with what's going on with that child is that is that why it's helpful to yeah. catch it at the catch it early or? yeah I think um, a lot of diagnoses um, will come with um, a higher risk of having say kidney issues or heart issues or so it doesn't mean the child's already experiencing that. 
but it just means that the risk is really high that they will. And so being able to connect parents to appropriate specialists and as a preventative method and not a reactive method is much more beneficial for that child um, and for obvious reasons, but, um, and also for the healthcare system from a financial perspective. Our healthcare system is strained, right? Like and it's becoming more and more strained over time. And so being able to act preventatively in a lot of these cases is, is where it's at. That's our number one goal. So, um, but also to connect them to other families who have children with these rare diseases and who are very educated and they've been trailblazers for years is pretty incredible. Um, we, we do that well in Louisiana, believe it or not. Um, a lot of our best resources and foundations and support groups are in South Louisiana. So we have that um, obstacle for those of us in North Louisiana bridging the gap. But Zoom has helped us with that. <laughs> That's one of the few positives that kind of came out of the COVID era was that people are more open to and accustomed to using these technologies to communicate effectively and efficiently. Um, the other thing we found is that, and, and the literature and research will tell you this, um, the number one source of information and education for families has been Facebook groups that moms started. And um, those can be double-edged swords, right? Because you want the right um, information to be dispersed, but really that's been the number one connect point for families. And so um, really being able to help put some formalities to that and connect family to family um, outside of just social media has been really um, great. It's been a great benefit of this council being established. I would tell you as a mother of a child who has a rare disease, um, one of the best surprises is that we have so many incredibly internationally well-known expert doctors right here in our own state. Um, I think a lot of us always feel like we need to go to Dallas or we need to go to Little Rock or we need to go even places that are further, Houston or New York. or um, But a lot of world-renowned doctors in rare disease are right there in New Orleans at Tulane. And so that's been an incredible benefit to our state and um, and so having these people on the council they're really educated on what next steps should be so that we can act effectively and efficiently for the families in our community awesome all right you already mentioned it but you've you've been in this field doing this incredible work you do for nearly 20 years now what's more challenging today in the field than it was when you first began? I think the biggest challenge for me is that we haven't progressed as much as we should have in 20 years. Um, we know a lot more about serving people well and effectively with developmental disabilities, and we haven't applied much of it. Um, a lot of times we are doing the same things we were doing in the 60s and 70s and we have not evolved. And I think, I personally think it's because we're talking about a population of people that cannot speak up for themselves. And if you really look at people at large, minority groups, majority groups, we're all able to speak up for ourselves. That doesn't mean we always do it, but we have the ability. But for me, the people I serve, they're not able to speak up for themselves for the most part. And, um, and if they do, they're very often overlooked or underestimated. And so I think that um, 
that continues to be an obstacle that um, I mean luckily for our community in Shreveport Bossier we have a lot of um, people who are parent advocates and they've really been trailblazers and they continue to do that um, I think it's unfortunate that they have to <laughs> you know I think at this point they should have a lot more um, opportunities in our community for their adult children now um, but people like Monica Stampley at Families Helping Families, everything she learned over the years, she now helps other parents with. I think that's pretty incredible. Nothing, no struggle is in vain. I always say no struggle should ever be in vain. You got to do something good with it. And she, she really has, um, lends, she lends a hand daily, probably dozens of times daily to other parents who are now, you know, in the beginning stages of their child being diagnosed with something and trying to figure out how to navigate this world. Um, but I think that continues to be a challenge. And um, I think that I spent the first half of my career helping people with developmental disabilities understand the world they were born into and how they have to acclimate to communicate with that world effectively. But I think I wanna spend the second half of my career helping the community that they were born into acclimate and learn how to effectively communicate with the out-of-the-box learners. You know, I, I strongly believe in neurodiversity. I don't believe any person's an accident. I don't believe that we're all broken in some capacity, right? But um, people with developmental disabilities are not broken, they're different than you. And I think that um, neurodiversity is something to be celebrated. Um, you're not doing anybody a favor to let them into your little world, right? Like that's their right, that's their human God-given right. And so I think it's a good time in this community to shift the way we think and perceive people that are different and make room for everybody at the table. Um, and I think that we're well on our way to that. All right, so lastly, Kelly, on the, on the flip side of what I just asked, talk, talk to me about some areas that are better today, better in your field of work today than they have been at any other point in your career? Yeah, I have a big one right off the bat. Um, so I think that we have got to move away from this clinical approach to treating problematic behavior or treating people with special needs and, and teaching skill sets. This clinical approach of everything happens in these four walls with a table and two chairs and it's a very analog controlled setting with no distractions. The reality is their moms or dads or grandparents pick them up from that clinical setting and the real world is happening. That is not a practical approach to treatment or education. Um, so I do see our community shifting away from that. Our science has never said that was the most effective approach to the treatment of uh, you know, various obstacles that people with developmental disabilities experience. Um, but somewhere along the way, um, I have my theories on why, um, over generations we, we wanted to control everything and we feel good about ourselves if we teach something in this low distraction environment. We've done nothing for people to teach them that this is how we engage and communicate with no distraction. We need to move out into the real world and we need to provide therapy and educational experiences in the real world, in the context of the community. And nobody ever said learning happens in these four walls. Learning happens all day long every day for all of us. And so I think that I have seen a shift in that. 
I love just piggybacking off of the earlier example I gave about Word of God in Shekinah Academy. I think it's awesome that a, a private school and church said, hey, we'll give it a go. Why not? Let's see what happens. And I'm sure there were a lot more uh, details and conversation to how they wanted to do that. And their range of error has been small. But, but 99% of it is being willing to just try something new and open your doors a little bit more than before. And um, I think they seem to have a lot of success. And I think that schools doing that, um, I think it's contagious in our community. I think all it takes is one person to look at that and say, well, they did it. Maybe we can do it. And I think the more of us that can do that, the bigger uh, benefit our families will have in this community. Something that people are often shocked about is that a fifth of the population is actually diagnosed with a disability. Now, that doesn't mean it's a developmental disability, but that does include developmental or intellectual disabilities. And you're talking about 20% of your population. So I think it's really incredible. Um, a, a perfect example is going to Disney World. The first time I took my f oldest son to Z Disney World, he was about four or five years old, and we walked in. And the first thing I noticed is right here to the right, um, there was a whole center set up. So if you had a physical disability and you needed anything, um, you had it right here for free. And it was high quality equipment. It was like new and clean and high quality. It wasn't something from 30 years ago that someone handed down to this person to use. Or if you were blind or visually impaired, if you were hard of hearing, you had accommodations already there. It made you feel like we're not accommodating you. We built this so you would come, right? And I think it would behoove us to create environments that plan for everybody to come and be welcome and participate successfully in these environments. I think the Y does that well. Um, but, but Disney World makes you feel like you belong. And it doesn't matter who you are or what um, strengths and weaknesses you come with. They planned for you to be there, and they want you to be there. And I think that's what our educational system should be like. I think that's what our restaurants should be like. I think that's what our therapy centers should be like. I think that's what our gyms should be like. And, um, and it would benefit everybody, everybody at the table to do that. Um, so I do think we're moving in that direction in this particular community. And I think we um, have a lot, a long way to go. Um, but as long as we're continuing to have those conversations and continuing to progress forward, we'll get there, you know. Is there anything else you'd like to mention? Uh, this was incredible, but is there anything else you that I haven't touched on? You're the first person in the world of special needs or developmental disabilities we've had on here, so this is all extraordinarily educational for us. And um, so I don't know if there's anything else you want. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would end on this note. Um, I say this all the time to friends and families or people that encounter me and ask me questions. How can I be more supportive to my, um, my best friend has a child with special needs. How can I support him or her? How can I participate in that? And I think just being open-minded and asking questions and not being scared to ask questions. And I think everybody needs to be supported in different ways. Everybody um, wants to be understood. I meet a lot of families who will schedule meetings for me uh, or with me and they're coming and the appointment is as if they're doing an intake, but really they just want to be heard. You know, not everybody wants treatment from what we have. Not everybody 
uh, what's a long time professional relationship. Sometimes they just come and meet with me because they want to be understood because they don't feel understood. And I think that being open to having those conversations, um, stepping out of your comfort zone and asking questions to each person, don't make any assumptions. All parents with children with autism go through different journeys. They experience different stressors. Like, don't make assumptions. Just ask the person right in front of you where they're at, how they're doing, what they need. And um, that is the best way to support people. Yeah. Thanks, Kelly. Yeah, thank you, Jeffrey. You're a trailblazer, so I appreciate you. Very lucky to have you.